this art of meditation that we're engaged with, that we've been engaged in throughout the day today, is very much a path. It is indeed a path that leads from suffering to happiness. It's a path that moves from agitation to peace, from confusion to wisdom. Implied in using this word path, and sometimes the way is a word that's used, the way of meditation, this kind of language, does imply a sense of direction. Now, in the beginning, it's really difficult to see that there is any path whatsoever. One knows agitation, certainly, and perhaps has memories of calm at some point or another, but they seem very far away, particularly after the first day, uh, this first night after a first day of retreat. Um, One remembers or knows confusion very well, but can't really recall a whole lot of wisdom. We forget these things, and we find ourselves dwelling in the beginning of this road, this path, this way. And we can't really see beyond. We don't have a sense of vision because we're not able to see this path for ourselves. So we find ourselves, in a sense, groping in the dark. It's almost like an unlit path in the woods where at night, where it's very dark, and you have to kind of feel your way along. You kind of maybe somewhat know that there's a beginning of the path and then you're going to get somewhere if you continue to walk, you know, hopefully where you want to go. But it's dark, you know, so you're, you're really uneasy and you're sort of just, just groping and feeling along. And one is relying on others to tell you that there is indeed a path because you can't see it for yourself. What brings us to the practice? Different things bring us to the practice. Sometimes we find ourselves practicing because of various childhood experiences that we've had that have been powerful in some way. And then we begin the practice, and we have some sense of home, some sense of being home again that we lost. We had this when we were a child, and we lost it for a good many years uh, as we grew up. And then as adults, um, you know, however, whatever age one is, uh, one finds it again. And so there's that sense of coming home. Other times it's because of a great loss that one has experienced in one's life, the loss of a loved one or a divorce or something really shaking you up. You know, and so knowing you need something, you need a practice, you need a path. And other times, people just stumble upon this. Uh, There's the situation of someone who came from Russia many years ago, and right after coming from Russia, she had heard about IMS, and she came here, and she started her retreat. And we found out after a while that actually um, she was going around saying, um, where are the hot tubs, and where are the saunas, because she mistook IMS for a spa. 
<laughs> she actually thought IMS was a spa. Now, you know, to her credit, she stayed anyway <laughs> and gained from the practice and got enlightened, and, you know, it was a great story. But um, really kind of stumbled into it. And I have to say, for myself, these three reasons are all true. You know, faith, uh, because of some childhood experiences, certainly desperation, uh, not because of a sense of loss when I first began the practice, but because I had really done everything else I could do to find happiness, and it was quite elusive. And I was also getting myself in trouble in my efforts to find happiness. I won't go into the details. And definitely I stumbled into it to some degree because I had been on another path, a a yogic path, kundalini yoga, for some time. And I stumbled, um, actually um, uh, physically bumped into um, someone who is now my great friend and colleague, Larry Rosenberg. But I actually bumped into him. And that was the beginning of this path. So you could say that I very much stumbled into this. And then, of course, having a conversation and hearing a little bit about it, I I felt very strongly that there was a sense of home for me in this. So we start in a variety of different ways. Gradually, no matter how much we have to feel things out, through the practice of paying attention, over and over again, little glimmers of light begin to show or reveal themselves. You know, we have a little, we can see a little bit ahead of ourselves. It's like a, a, a candle on this path through the woods that lights the path enough so that we can take the next step and then take the next step and take the next step. Eventually, of course, the path is fully lit. There is a very clear sense of direction. And we find ourselves quite confident and sure-footed in our endeavors in this practice. In other words, the path is gradually illuminated. Awareness lights this path that has always been here, but we haven't been able to see it before. Kind of reminds me I was in... Seattle, um, I guess it was a couple of years ago now, this visit to Seattle. And my friends there, um, two friends, were telling me that Seattle is surrounded by mountains. But when I was there, there was only fog. And I saw no mountains whatsoever the whole entire time I was there. And I kept saying, where's the mountains? Where's the mountains? So finally, they had to take me to a store to buy me a postcard (laughs) in Seattle so that I could see the mountains for myself. But I never actually saw the mountains. I had to go on their word that the mountains were there. So it's kind of like that. You know, the mountains become visible as we practice. And just another way of saying it is that the path becomes visible as we practice. And this is really what I would like to talk about tonight, the path being made visible, or the illuminated path. As there is more awareness, as there is more light, there is a greater trust. Someone can come to us and say, there's no path whatsoever 
There are no mountains whatsoever. And we don't believe them because we know for ourselves that it's not so. In other words, our confidence and trust in both ourselves as well as in the possibility of inner freedom becomes more and more verified. And so we begin to trust ourselves more. We become willing to abide with the huge ups and downs that are possible in our lives without being quite as thrown by them. Instead of clinging to the ups and thinking that it's always going to be this way, conditions are always going to be a certain way, or lost in the downs, we develop a kind of inner steadiness of heart that serves us well. Just in speaking about the downs, which might, for many of us in this room, might be a little bit more pertinent tonight, um, just to speak about the example of a feeling of um, despair. Maybe one feels despair in a certain mind moment. Things have been difficult, and there's agitation, and there's restlessness, and there's sleepiness, and there is a moment of despair. Without any confidence in the path, without a sense of there even being a path, what happens is that out of this moment of despair, or feeling despair, or feeling uncertainty, or whatever it might be, restlessness, or or sleepiness, or whatever it might be, there is a story that is built up around this one feeling that we tend to believe in. So what began as a moment of despair becomes an entire world that lasts for some amount of time. Because we have built up a story around it. I'm feeling despair because of. And then there are many reasons to feel despair. Always very handy reasons. If not personal reasons, then worldly reasons. We can always make a case for justifying the experience that we're having. So without a sense of the path, forgetting that there is a path, we believe in the thoughts and stories about what is an experience happening in the here and now. In remembering that there's a path, which means remembering to be mindful, we don't let it take us where we don't want to go. In other words, we're willing to experience things as they are in a fresh way in the here and now. No matter how much time has gone by, it doesn't matter. It's not like we have to get back to that first moment of, of difficulty. It's always right here and right now what is actually happening, not the story about what is happening, not connected to history about why it is that's happening is happening. But in the moment of it, is it possible to experience it? Is it possible to be with it exactly as it is, instead of either embellishing it or trying to push it away? Another example might be someone criticizing us. When we lose our perspective and we lose a sense of there being a path, what we tend to do is we tend to nurture that insult, that criticism. We tend to nurture that hurt, which then, of course, turns into anger, which then, of course, turns into resentment, 
which oftentimes turns into disappointment in ourselves because of how we're feeling. You know, so we get lost because of this. Maybe we begin to scheme a little bit. You know, how can I um, explain that this criticism is completely unjustified? You know, maybe we begin to explain things to ourselves or to this imaginary being who has criticized us. You know, maybe we start thinking, how can I get them back? In such a way, I'm a spiritual being, so I don't want it to be obvious that I'm getting them back. <laughs> but how can, I, how can I try to get them back in some way? When we remember that there is indeed a path, and we are on this path, we are practitioners. We can commit to experiencing the pain of it. We can feel it in the present moment. We don't have to dwell in past thoughts and nurture those thoughts. Now, thoughts are bound to arise, but we don't have to nurture them. We don't have to encourage that which is going to bring us in a direction that we don't want to go. Instead, we can know that there are these thoughts occurring. There is this dialogue happening. In other words, we can be aware instead of nurturing that which is not going to serve. Whether easy or difficult moments, we learn more and more to trust in awareness. Now, of course, we have both an individual path as well as what might be called a universal path something along those lines. You know, and individually, we all have different histories, we have different upbringings, we have different work, we're in different relationships, and our personal path is quite different from one another. You know, one of us may have great difficulty in, um, in a family situation. So that is what one makes into one's path and tries to bring awareness to. Another one of us may have difficulty with our work life. And so we see if we can bring this into our practice and be aware of our work life as our practice. One of us, another one of us, may feel like everything's fine, no problem whatsoever. You know, and yet, people around us aren't really enjoying us all that much. You know? and, so, and so we can bring awareness to this as well. We can look to see what is personal. What do we need to see um, as our personal path? And then bring the practice to these various areas. Seeing if we can light up these personal areas with awareness. And the universal path, or the path that we all share, is the path of awareness. It's from moment to moment bringing attentiveness, a caring and loving attentiveness into our life, whatever way it is. And this is something that, as practitioners, we all share. However, which way we break things down individually. And to break things down individually is authentic, and we certainly need to respect our individual path. And at the same time, remembering, perhaps, that we are all on another path as well. We are on a path that we share, um, which is this path that moves from agitation to calm, that moves us out of confusion into wisdom, out of unkindness into compassion. And this is what we share. 
the direction of the path is away from suffering. But the how of this, how to move away from suffering, is not at all instinctual. You know, we could say, unfortunately, because it, it really is not instinctual at all. Oftentimes, it requires going against instinct, actually, which is not so, so easy. It re- it's sometimes counterintuitive. It requires going against something that we've always called intuition, even if it certainly feels a whole lot like delusion. Instinctually, our movement as beings is generally towards comfort, wanting comfort. It's towards wanting more pleasure as an end unto itself. It's towards accumulating this and that as a way to make ourselves feel safe or to fill a sense of deprivation within It's trying to find status in this world, trying to be visible and seen by others and seen as better than others or, um, you know, higher than others or something like that. That's our instinct. That's generally the direction that our instinct brings us to. And the Buddha would call this the path of discontent, you know, this path of instinct, actually the path of discontent, of misery, of suffering, because none of this lasts. None of it actually holds us up. And just to use a really worldly example here about um, this lottery winner, (laughs) really worldly example, lottery winners often struggle to handle newfound wealth and fame, and many become tied up in lawsuits or estranged from family and friends. One study found that instant millionaires have about the same level of happiness as recent accident victims. (laughs) This is not something to aspire to. I mean, our aspirations are are often not something to aspire to because our, our deep aspirations, the reason why we are all here, is because of a yearning of the heart. Really sensing within us that this yearning of the heart can be fulfilled through the practice. As we practice, we do learn different ways to be in our lives. We awaken into wisdom, and oftentimes we make different choices about what is truly going to serve us rather than what we've been taught or the path we've been on thus far. I'd like to read you an autobiography, and um, it's called An Autobiography in Five Short Chapters by Portia Nelson. And um, just to show you my paper, it's very short, (laughs) so don't be daunted by thinking it's a long, long book which is what an autobiography usually is. This is great because it's kind of like it's, it's the bare bones of it all. You know, it's a spiritual, very um, zen-like autobiography, which we can all relate to, I think, in some way or another. Chapter 1. I walk down the street. There is a deep hole in the sidewalk. I fall in. I am lost. I am helpless. It isn't my fault. It takes forever to find a way out. Chapter 2. I walk down the same street. There is a deep hole in the sidewalk. 
I pretend I don't see it. I've fallen again. I can't believe I am in the same place. But it isn't my fault. It still takes a long time to get out. Chapter 3 I walk down the same street. There is a deep hole in the sidewalk. I see it is there. I still fall in. It's a habit. My eyes are open. I know where I am. It is my fault. I get out immediately. Chapter 4 I walk down the street. There is a deep hole. I walk around it. Chapter 5 I walk down another street. (laughs) This is exactly what we're doing in practice. We are actually walking down another street. We are seeing if we can take responsibility, not blaming ourselves, because that doesn't go anywhere, but taking responsibility, meaning learning responsiveness to our difficulties of heart, our sorrows, our boredom, our agitation, our uneasiness, our anxiety. We're learning how to be more sensitive and responsive. Instead of blindly believing our conditioning and being bossed around by our conditioning, bowing down to, being intimidated by our habits and our patterns, we learn to walk down a different street. When the path seems quite dark and very unlit and we're in a, a time, a phase of practice, and everything in practice is a phase, when we're in phases in practice where there is only glimmers, we only have sight of these glimmers, the path can seem fruitless. You know, we're just doing it in a mechanical and automatic way. I think it's really important when we fall into times of uncertainty or, or doubt about ourselves or about the practice, that we remember that there's a very long path of confusion in our past. You know, we begin the practice and we want things to change immediately. Of course, of course we want things to change right away. And so oftentimes we forget patience. You know, and the patience is remembering how many years we have actually been walking down another road, a road that has not brought us where we want to go. And I think sometimes remembering something that the Buddha said that is kind of like one of those things that, you know, you're not supposed to think about. It's more like a, like a, a shout, which is that ignorance is beginningless. So even if you look at your life from when you were a baby and you think, ah, you know, I, I really was quite clear um, in everything that I did and um, had, had very few moments of, um, of confusion or made very few mistakes, which probably is not true for anyone in this room. Um, you know, even, even if one thinks in that way about the time when you were a baby, if you really open your mind and just you know, recall this statement of the Buddhas, which again, you're not supposed to think about because you can't, which is that ignorance is beginningless. You know, then one feels quite good, actually, because here we are beginning to do something quite different, beginning to actually turn our lives around. And I'm speaking to those of you who are totally new and those of us who have been on this path for a very long time at this point. It's always summoning up the energy 
to be mindful instead of being caught in our habits and in our patterns. So we're always turning things around. You know, in each moment of practice, it's not as if, because we've been practicing a long time, we're supposed to be in a particular place. Now, it's really, the path means every moment that we can remember, we practice differently than our old habits and patterns order us to. The patience is really necessary because, as Ajahn Chah, a very wonderful Tai Chi teacher, says, our job is simply to water and fertilize ourselves. You know, and that's what we're doing here. It's as if we're plants. We're all living plants. And on some level, of course, we are. And we are watering ourselves in a variety of different ways through the Dharma nourishment that we encounter in this environment both outwardly as well as inner dharma nourishment. So we are watering ourselves and we're fertilizing ourselves. You know, we're doing the best we can by being as awake and mindful as we can. And then our practice is to let go of results. You know, because we cannot force a plant to flower or to grow even. We can just do the best we can and trust that the plant will grow if there is the caring attention to it that we're attempting to give ourselves. When we begin the practice, we do begin a new life. You know, it's as if um, if you've been practicing for two years, you're two, two years old. Or if you've been practicing for 18 years, you're 18 years old. Or this or that. You know, one really gets a new life when one begins this practice. Michael and I have a very good friend, very wonderful friend, who began this practice when she was in her 50s. And when I met her, um, she looked very drawn. Her face was very, very drawn and very kind of dry. And she looked like she was really not having such a great time in life. And she is now in her upper 70s. And she is absolutely gorgeous. She is absolutely gorgeous. Now, you know, I'm not trying to be silly here to say that, you know, her wrinkles have disappeared or, you know, she, she's gone backwards or anything like that. False promises in practice doesn't really happen that way. However, there's a radiance and a luminescence and a glow that is quite remarkable that can be felt. And she says she feels younger than she ever did. You know, in other words, the body is the body. And you can do whatever you want, but the body is going to be the body and get old at some point. But that which is alive within is something that does not have to get old and actually can get younger. You know, the, the aliveness of heart within. As we touch this more and more, we feel something generating itself within us, which allows us to be fresh and open and um, awake to new experiences, not thinking that we know everything and depressed about life, but rather sensitive and open and very fresh. I have another um, person that I'm thinking about who, um, because everyone practices in their own way and in their own time, so this other person I'm thinking about uh, began practicing perhaps 25 years ago 
and really understood a lot of what was being said. I mean, I know when I began to practice, it really, I was thinking so much that it really all went over my head for quite a while until I could slow down the thinking enough to be able to receive the teachings. But this person actually understood a lot from, um, from the first day of her practice and loved it, really enjoyed it. And then actually did not continue with the practice except for in a very shallow way you know, stopped doing retreats and sat maybe 10 minutes a day and didn't continue in a deep way with the practice and made certain choices in her life that um, brought her into a whole lot of, of complications. Five years ago, she sat another retreat. And she had sat retreats throughout the years, but not with a whole lot of dedication. She sat this one retreat, and something happened where in the five years since, total dedication to the practice and the result in her is a great deal of happiness. Um, it's very interesting to notice this when you notice practitioners over the years. You know, because in a way you could see she turned something around. Something took. Everyone has their own way with these things. And for her, something took. Now, of course, she could think, oh, I wish I'd done this, you know, many, many years ago and didn't get myself into the complications that she got herself into. And of course, you know, that that would have been great. But things are as they are. And so to see that it actually turned around for her, um, it's just so heartening and, and beautiful to see. We can, though, have kind of a very uh, laissez-faire attitude about the practice, and we do really waste our um, mind when we do this. We really do um, kind of torture ourselves longer than we need to when we have too lax of an attitude. I found this um, comic where there's somebody who's dressed in um, kind of, not, not, um, not monk robes, but, but a robe nonetheless. And um, speaking about cell phones, he has a cell phone up to his, up to, um, up to his ear. And um, and he's sitting on a on a, um, a zabuton, and the caption underneath is, "Let me get back to you. I'm crazed with this noble path." <laughs> you know, crazed with this noble path while chatting. It's it doesn't really go together. You know, cell phone while sitting. It's it's in opposition. So yes, it, it, you know, crazed or enthusiastic or excited or this or that, but doing it little bit of a difference between, um, between one's attitude and actually practicing. What is true is that we can always begin again. And this is one of the remarkable aspects of this practice, I think, is that in each moment, it is possible to begin again. No matter how many mind moments we've spaced out on, no matter how many um, choices, unwise choices we've made, no matter how many mistakes, no matter what our life is like, no matter whether we spent a whole hour today in a complete fog, we can always begin again. And we are very much encouraged and invited to begin again. There's a Turkish proverb, no matter how far you've gone down the wrong road, turn back. <laughs> this is what we're doing is we are turning back. So what is the, quote, right road? 
Well, there's this Pali word, which is um, sama. And this word means right or wise or true. And it has to do with what, as many of you know, is called the Eightfold Noble Path. Sama, or right or wise or true, means that which is based on the truth of things. And the Eightfold Noble Path really are, there. it's ways to illuminate um, and reveal different areas of our life. So ways to bring light to all areas rather than just some. Because what we tend to do, of course, in our life, in our practice, is to only be mindful in particular arenas, particular areas, maybe that which we feel is weakest or that which we feel is strongest. But the Noble Eightfold Path allows us to look at all areas of our life and to bring all areas into view. So the first three are wise speech, wise action, and wise livelihood. Wise speech meaning speech that is truthful, that is kind, that is useful, that is unifying. Wise action meaning action that is beneficial and non-harmful. Wise livelihood meaning work that is ethical and doesn't harm ourselves or others. These three areas or aspects of the path free the heart from remorse and from guilt. The second three aspects are wise effort, wise mindfulness, and wise samadhi. Wise effort is the effort to be mindful. Wise mindfulness is being mindful and aware of all aspects of this body-mind experience. And wise samadhi is focused and sustained steadiness of attention. And these three aspects deepen and purify our hearts. The last of the path factors, wise understanding and wise intention. Wise understanding is the understanding of how things work, cause and effect, for one thing. Wise intention, there are three wise intentions. The intention to let go of that which is unnecessary, of that which is impermanent, to cultivate loving-kindness, and to cultivate compassion. And these aspects of the path have to do with waking up and living our practice so that it's not just in our minds. The Eightfold Noble Path is a traditional way of speaking about the path, but there is another way that is the same path. There is, one might say, the uh, the shorter way, which is seeing all path factors as one. And the way to see all path factors as one is to take the path of non-avoidance. Is, from moment to moment, to take the path of non-resistance. Embracing each moment, regardless of content, welcoming all of our experiences, whether wonderful or terrible, whether easy or difficult, whether we like the experience or whether we can't stand the experience. 
the path of non-resistance is really a path that we can trust. Being present with the difficult means going against our habits and our patterns and our tendencies gently and lovingly and yet at the same time with wise effort, relentlessly, impeccably, you know, being aware that our habits and our patterns really do not serve inner freedom. And so being willing to not always take the path of comfort, but instead take the path of non-resistance, of non-avoidance of the difficult. When we do this, there is no such thing as a bad moment. There's no such thing as a bad day. You know, we can live a day and we can say, well, that was a bad day. But actually, when we're taking the path of non-resistance, we are seeing life not through our descriptions of life, but from moment to moment. And so we can see that something different is possible when we're fresh and awake in this very moment. Just because the past has been a certain way, it does not mean that the future has to be that same way. So we are not allowing the past to impose itself on the present in our seeing life from moment to moment. Instead of glossing over things as a good day or a good um, a, a bad day or a good day, a bad um, hour or a good hour, a bad retreat or a good retreat. There's likely to be someone in this room who is already contextualizing um, your experience as, you know, I've had a bad retreat. It's been one day, you know? It's been one day. Uh, or I've had a bad day. But if we can take this path, this liberating path of non-resistance, then we see things in a really different light with a really different perspective. We see that life is always an invitation to be aware and awake to. And we find ourselves less identified with our experiences, less resistant to the unpleasant, and so living more of our life instead of pushing that which we don't like away. When we push that which we don't like away, it actually strengthens it, whatever it is, and makes it stronger. It actually is a way of feeding it. When we push our unpleasant experiences away, we lose a lot of our life because our life includes both the beauty and the terribleness. It includes both pleasure as well as pain. It includes the joys as well as the sorrows. And in a practice of non-resistance, which doesn't mean pushing ourselves through and thinking that we should be experiencing anything other than what we're actually experiencing. It just means that we're, we have a really different orientation in life. We have a different perspective in life where we're willing to take everything on as the practice itself. We're learning over and over again how to take refuge in awareness. Sometimes we find that we practice because we are being motivated by great discontent 
and something quite wonderful comes out of this. I wanted to read you a story. A young man who had a bitter disappointment in life went to a remote monastery and said to the abbot, I am disillusioned with life and wish to attain enlightenment to be freed from these sufferings, but I have no capacity for sticking long at anything. I could never do long years of meditation and study and austerity. I would relapse and be drawn back to the world again, painful though I know it to be. Is there any short way for people like me? Which kind of cracks me up because this story comes very old Zen story. You know, everyone's always looking for the short way. Sometimes we think as Americans we really want the short way, but I think we actually have a long lineage behind us of beings who want the short way. Anyway, <clears throat> there is, said the abbot, if you are really determined. Tell me, what have you studied? What have you concentrated on most in your life? This person said, well, really nothing. I was rich, and so I didn't have to work. I suppose the thing I was really interested in was chess. I spent most of my time at that. The abbot thought for a moment and then said to his attendant, call Bhante Sukayami and tell him, I made the word up, and tell him to bring a chessboard and men. The monk came with the board, and the abbot set up the men. He sent for a sword and showed it to the two. Oh, monk, he said, you have vowed obedience to me as your abbot, and now I require it of you. You will play a game of chess with this man, and if you lose, I shall cut off your head with this sword. If you win, I shall cut off the head of this man. Chess is the only thing he has ever tried hard at, and if he loses, he deserves to lose his head also. They looked at the abbot's face and saw that he meant it. He would cut off the head of the loser. So they began to play. With the opening moves, the man felt the sweat trickling down to his heels as he played for his life. The chessboard became the whole world. He was entirely concentrated on it. At first, he had somewhat the worst of it. But then the monk made an inferior move, and he seized his chance to launch a strong attack. As his opponent's position crumbled, he looked covertly at him. He saw a face of intelligence and sincerity, worn by years of austerity and effort. He thought of his own life and how he had used his life, and a wave of compassion came over him. He deliberately made a blunder, and then another blunder, ruining his position and leaving himself defenseless. The abbot suddenly leant forward and upset the board. The two contestants sat stupefied. There is no winner and no loser, said the abbot slowly. There is no head to fall here. Only two things are required, and he turned to the young person, complete concentration and compassion. You have today learned them both. You were completely concentrated on the game, but then in that concentration you could feel compassion and sacrifice your life for it. Now stay here for a few months and pursue our training in this spirit, and your enlightenment is sure. He did so, and he got it. <laughs> yes, all good Zen stories end. As the path lights up, as we continue to practice from moment to moment, just simply doing our best, which we always are, as the path lights up, instead of relying on theory and on obligation, you know, I should be like this, I should be mindful, I should 
be accepting this. I should be practicing right now. Instead, we want to with every fiber of our being. This is the direction of this path. We are learning to trust in awareness instead of trusting in grasping after. And we find for ourselves, not as a rumor, not as a great idea, that all happiness is found in awareness, not in changing phenomena. We develop a passion for life itself instead of for the things of life. Sometimes this path is called the path without a goal. Krishnamurti used to call it this, a path without a goal, meaning that we don't want to strive. This path has nothing to do with gaining anything or with being materialistic. Uh, Some years ago, someone told me that because she had been in Est, every time she wanted a parking place, she always could find it in the middle of Boston. And I don't know if this is true or not. I have no idea. But I can tell you that if you continue with this path, you will not find parking places (laughs) when you want And even if you do, you might want to offer that place to the person behind you. It's possible. It's possible. Even in Boston, it's possible. What is true, though, is that we will discover freedom. This is true. We will discover inner freedom for ourselves. Let me um, finish with something. called The Simple Path by Ajahn Chah. Traditionally, the Eightfold Path is taught with eight steps, such as wise understanding, wise speech, wise concentration, and so forth. But the true Eightfold Path is within us, two eyes, two ears, two nostrils, a tongue, and a body. These eight doors are our entire path, and the mind is the one that walks on the path. Know these doors, examine them, and all truth will be revealed. The heart of the path is so simple. No need for long explanations. Give up clinging to the pleasant and the unpleasant. Just rest with things as they are. This is all I do in my own practice. Do not try to become anything. Do not make yourself into anything. Do not be a meditator. Do not become enlightened. When you sit, let it be. When you walk, let it be. Grasp at nothing. Resist nothing. Of course, there are dozens of meditation techniques to develop samadhi and many kinds of vipassana. But it all comes back to this. Just let it all be. Step over here where it is cool, out of the battle. Why not give it a try? Do you dare? Let's just sit for a moment together.
May all beings have ease of mind. May all beings have steadiness of heart. May all beings live in love and in compassion. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.